begins with me as a reporter because I literally ran across a newspaper clipping that I had called the paper about to complain when I was 16 and said that they, they ran, a, my father was missing and they were following it. And then there was a little story saying they've got no leads or something. And I can't remember why they had that, but it, it said that it, they thought it was tied to gambling. And I, I just knew it wasn't. I don't know why, but I called the reporter and said, you're wrong. That was author and journalist Kim Rich. She wrote the classic memoir, Johnny's Girl. It's about her tumultuous upbringing in Anchorage's underworld. Back in the 1960s, her dad, Johnny, worked Anchorage's nightlife, gambling houses, prostitution, and get-rich-quick schemes. Her mom, Ginger, was an exotic dancer. She had mental health issues and spent years of her life in a number of institutions. Both of their lives, Johnny and Ginger, were cut short, leaving Kim to fend for herself at a young age. Through research, interviews, and recollection, Kim would write about her parents to try to work out her feelings and understanding of them. She found that her dad was a complicated man, and that her mom was a tragic figure, loving and caring, but in the throes of mental anguish. She's always put a lot of thought into describing and understanding Anchorage as a city and the people who live there. In her book, she describes it as neon, both physically neon and existentially neon. The bright, flashy lights of downtown Anchorage and the pioneer spirit of the 60s influenced her perception. It was a place of endless possibilities, where anyone could do anything. A place you could run away to and remake yourself in whatever image you wished. Today, Kim says that she's enjoying getting older and that she feels like she's finally mellowing. She lives in Louisiana, teaching journalism and trying to get used to the fact that her kids have moved out of the house. But she still considers Alaska home. So here she is, Kim Rich. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. I should do stand-up comedy. Not that I'm funny right now. But so I've been sort of making up shit as I go, <laughs> thinking, okay, I'm going to do, I did a book signing at, at writer's block and they, they put me on a stage with a mic stand and I kind of stood there and I said, this feels okay. So then I kind of went for it a little. I just kept telling jokes and, oh, you want to talk about the book people? I'm sorry. I thought you wanted anyway. <laughs> So you just got back from a trip to Anchorage, right? Yes. And what were you doing up there? I usually go home every summer, but I missed two summers because of COVID. Uh, This time I went up to see a friend who had fought a successful 10-year battle against stage 4 ovarian cancer, uh, but now had finally gone on to hospice uh, just a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. hospice care. And so me and some of her closest friends that were not in Alaska at the time went up there to spend time with her before she passed on. Mm-hmm. 
So that was the purpose of that particular visit. But I also, you know, see friends and of uh, mine, and and there's one friend of my dad's that I'm still in touch with. He was younger than my dad by 20 years, so he's still around. And what's that like meeting up with him, the the friend of your dad's? Um, we've been doing it for a long time since I was did research on the book, so. Um, it's like family. It's really nice. He's in his seventies. He's a veteran of the Vietnam war. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like, he's like family to me. He's, he wasn't a, like, uh, he was a friend and he, he's always sort of been maternal. (laughs) He always sort of, he was a roommate, uh, the last year of my dad's life. And my dad was staying at the, the, uh, luxurious, uh, accommodations, I'm sure over there. I knew at the, uh, massage parlor and I was mostly home. And so he stayed there to kind of keep an eye on me and he'd cook dinner and stuff. He kind of took care of me. And that's what that's always been like. He always takes me out to dinner. You know, we always eat <laughs> together, but yeah, it's, 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 it's always good. Do you have a place in Anchorage that you go to for dinner normally, or is it just kind of all over the place? Well, he has places and it changes sometimes with years, but I know one place we meet is, and, and, uh, some people know about this, but, uh, Leroy's mm-hmm. on uh, C street there, uh, is a big gathering place for, you know, sort of old timers and uh, they go there in the morning, throughout the afternoon, and Al like buys a newspaper, and then he shares. Oh, here's the paper, and they pass it around, um, and it's neat. You'll see like some politicians in there, younger ones, uh, and I think I saw Sam Cotton in there once, and then uh, Tom Begich would come in, and uh, just just like old timers. There's a bunch. It's like sort of an adjunct VFW hall, I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or a senior center. You know, so they'll sit there like Al will go there for sometimes several hours. He'll have breakfast and then they'll he'll have lunch and then um, get something made for dinner to take home. So we go there a lot. And then he likes to go to different restaurants that he's he, he's very good tippers. So, you know, if people treat him right, they do very well by Al. He's very, very good tipper. You know, as you're driving around Anchorage, does anything remind you? Of your upbringing? Yes, some things. I'm not often in the old neighborhood. It's, it's, um, you know, Anchorage, I used to say, luckily was a place that was always changing. And then, and I, I thought about this because I was very much so, I was staying with a friend. It's funny, that's a good question. I was staying with a friend who um, grew up in Airport Heights uh, and or City View. Off, up there um, off Lake Otis near 15th slash Debar. And I spent a, a year there in a house. Uh, my dad always rented places. My seventh grade year and went to Wendler Junior High, mm-hmm. go Rams. Um, <laughs> and I uh, had a wonderful time there that, you know, we were all, uh, so there I, you know, I was in with a pack of girls that I still know to this day um, that I'm close to in many ways. Um, uh, so back then we used to, you know, go to each other's houses and listen to the latest albums. Elton John's first album, Mad Men Across the Water, had come out. Things like that. Uh, so I was staying with her, my a friend of mine, Cindy, a dear friend, and she lives in a house. I really love these roots. Um, across the street from the house she grew up from the time she was a baby. Her sister, her older sister, lives in that house. 
uh, she just lost her mother and and I was doing, I was running around, I, did, I run and run walk and I was going around the neighborhood and I had mixed feelings about it. Um, and so I found myself kind of, con. you know, I'd go out every day and I'd decide, do I like this? Do I not like this? Is this the place I could live? If mm-hmm. I can, you know, um, had a house here, uh, you know, and then I, I, I think I came to the conclusion that, you know, middle school can be such a difficult time that um, yeah. in some ways and. And we lived in kind of, she said my house is okay, but I thought it was a crummy house. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, it's also a neighborhood that's been, you know, renewing itself. A lot of the houses have been added onto and changed. Um, so I, I, it did remind me of those years. Um, not the criminal years, but, you know, that's when my dad ran the, the gambling houses, not in our house. Um, I didn't get through the parts of Fairview. I kind of avoided it. Um but certainly, um, you know, it. I think about some things. I, I meant to go by the street and see if, you know, um, Alexander's Body Shop was still in business, for example, on 12th Avenue. You said you think about some things. What kind of things do you think about? Um, well, you know, I was... These days, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about what's happening right now, you know, contemporarily in Anchorage. I'm struck by the homeless problem. Um, so I do think about that. Uh, you know, I was talking to another old timer. I'm not an old timer yet, but I'm getting there. Um, <laughs> and we we talked about how they, you know, the homeless were really all just on that one or two blocks on Fourth Avenue. And they took that all away, although now there appears to be a block with at least two bars there. And sadly, and now it's not just, you know, um, people who drink, but the, the uh, I don't know, criminal drug uh, group, they're out there on the streets. Um, so I think a lot about that, but that's mm-hmm. because I want to go on trails, but I don't now. I never, well, actually, I never would go on a trail unless it was running right by a neighborhood and houses, or I had a very big dog with me or somebody else. Um, I always was pretty safe about that. Um so I, I wouldn't say they're more dangerous than they've ever been, but, uh, but it just, um, so I think about that. I, I think, so I kind of look at Anchorage and I think, how is it doing? I guess, is it doing all right? Is it not doing so well? What's, what looks great? What looks like it's in disrepair? Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. Um, you know, I've just been thinking a lot about those kind of things lately when I'm home and it's still home. I, uh, uh, the four, what is it? The fortieth. I can't believe I'm saying this. Is it the thirtieth or fortieth? There's a big anniversary for the book coming up next year, and I was talking to my publisher, paperback publisher, about it, and she was like, you know, saying no to everything from her book of denials. Uh, no, bad idea, bad idea. Um, I said, okay, let me try another one. Uh, at any rate, <laughs> um, I, uh, she said something about, well, you haven't lived there in a long time. I said what? You're in Berkeley. Hold on a minute. <laughs> I go home every summer. I like to say I'm staying somewhere else because my my husband's work took us out of state. Uh, but I, I still consider that my home. And I plan to spend more and more time with it now that my daughters are growing and in college. Uh, so I, have, I haven't lived there uh, in the same way uh, I used to, if you will, but I never, I didn't, I don't think of myself as having moved away either. I didn't say I'm leaving, I'm moving out of here. It was like, I'm going to be staying somewhere else for a little while, but I'll be back. 
you still feel this uh, strong connection to Alaska then? Oh, more than ever, more than ever. This, this trip, um, I had a lot of things resolved for me. I, you know, I, I just went through the first winter of an empty nest for, um, and, and, you know, we, having children with six years of pro, you know, a project before getting them Mm -hmm. (laughs) and having that, you know, having them, if you will. And, and then there was, you know, 20, the past, my oldest just turned 20 this summer. And, um, you know, so I, I just went through my first, uh, so all this past, it was the first time I'd really just been childless and, uh, it was pretty tough. You know, a friend of mine asked, oh, how is it? And I said, it's as bad and worse than anything you've ever heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. So get ready. Take lots of antidepressants and drink or whatever you got to do. <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, but then I'm kind of through that. I realized on this trip, I said I was okay traveling alone. I didn't want to cry every time I saw an adorable family together at an airport because I loved traveling. I have three daughters. I have twins and then an older daughter. Um, who's under a year older we've adopted and by we adopted and biological children mm-hmm. and so i i used to have this little posse with me for the last 20 years less so the last few years uh, when they were driving and te- you know uh, older teenagers but at any rate i found myself just feeling like the old kim for the first time and i found that my friends they've always mattered a lot to me i have a broad network of friends from different phases of life uh, up there. And I really want to be near them at this point a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I really value it. I always valued it, but I really find I've really, I've kind of, now that the kids are grown, I want to be around my friends again and hang out and stuff. Yeah. Get back to that, that life before the kids possibly. Yeah, yeah. Like I thought, who was I? Who am I? And I, it's there. I, I went back and I said, oh, yeah. you're the same old idiot you've always been. <laughs> um, and, and klutz and a lot of other things. Uh, annoying and, um, uh, you know, I swear occasionally, uh, maybe more than <laughs> occasionally sometimes. But yeah, I really, yeah, I really just felt like I used to feel with the same kind of, you know, trying to figure out what my goals are and stuff and what I want to work on and things. Mostly what I want to work on, you know. Um, so yeah, I'm back. I'm back. If that matters. Or as they said in the new Nicolas Cage movie, although I never really went away. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the new one, um, where he plays himself. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> right. I love that movie. That was hilarious. You know, and you know, Paddington really is a good movie. <laughs> That's the part me and my daughter watch. We said, Oh my God, this is the best movie ever made. Um, I'm, I mean, you know, I'm telling you, Citizen Kane can move aside. It's Paddington Bear. <laughs> the first and the second. And I think there's a third. I mean, it is, you know, when they redo that hundred year, that hundred greatest films of all time. Um, at any rate, I love that every time, you know, I'm back. Nicholas Cage is back. Not that he ever, not that I ever really went away. So that that's my thing. That's what I'm saying now. <laughs> you, you said earlier that your daughter just turned 20 and and something that immediately came to mind was that you in a lot of ways were on your own at 15 and i wonder what that was like to you know five years ago when your daughter turned 15 if you had any thoughts about that that's another very good question i thought that i thought about a lot and i still do 
um, it horrified me to think about a 15 year old uh, alone. Mm-hmm. And, and I wasn't entirely alone. I mean, there was a brief, the, the, my father was kidnapped in August when I was 15. They didn't solve the crime or find a body, if you will, until December. So there was this weird twilight zone, twilight period, I don't know what to call it. It was almost like out of Peter Pan, a never, never land of boys, you know, of me sort of alone in the house that we had been renting. Al was gone. He had been living there. I'm not sure, you know, he was gone. And uh, I mean, some runaways had come to stay there, had come and gone. Some other friends were hanging out there. It was like, you know, kids, really. Mm -hmm. And I went to school. I don't know how, you know, I managed to do that. I rode the bus every day to East High. And it it was somewhere in there, and it's kind of complicated, but eventually the the state of Alaska or somebody was alerted to the fact that I, you know, that I was running around 15 year old had no adult supervision. And about the same time, some adults, some families uh, that I knew stepped forward. I had several families that by, you know, the end of that school year, I could stay with and kind of took me in. Um, And uh, so I looked, I looked at my kids and I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe, Mm -hmm. you know, I went with a friend, uh, it was a guy friend, just a friend, like it matters at this point, but we were going to the States because that was the big thing back then, going to the lower 48. And we, I was, I just, you know, so I did stuff when I was a teenager, a young teenager that most people had to wait till college. So I was 16 the next summer and I was going to go to the States. And so he and I flew to Seattle and then hitchhiked, which, oh my God, right? Um, can't even think about now. And even then it was probably unwise down the coast. And then when he got to where he was going in California, I, I busted. I was, I was literally a 16 year old kid at the lost the LA Greyhound bus station. You know what a nice place that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and taking a bus to Phoenix where I had met somebody, some friends. And I went and then eventually stayed there for a while. But I was sort of doing things like that. Mm-hmm. I, I can't even imagine my kids doing anything like that. It both made me realize how much kids could do and how mature they are. They're not necessarily mature, but how much they're capable of and how young I, you know, I really was then. And why I was kind of in a constant state of terror, I think. Because I kept running into like people who were like 10 years older. You know, uh, you know the baby boom, the the real baby boom generation. I like to say. I mean, I'm they they, they tag me in that group, but are my age group. But I'm like, we're ten years younger. We didn't march. We didn't march. We weren't there. You know, we're we weren't sure about the free love thing. No, not really. <laughs> not you, buddy. <laughs> You're not cute, and and we're still too young anyway. <laughs> but yeah. I have a lot of mixed feelings about all that because there was always these guys like 10 years older and they, Oh, she's on her own. I'm like, yeah. And I'm 16. Okay. Back off. Yeah. <laughs> How long do you think you were in that constant state of terror? Um, till I got about 18 till I grew up some more, I think. Yeah. I really was afraid because people had, to, I remember thinking people think I'm an adult and I'm not. And, uh, and having these guys, I mean, really it was kind of a, all very scary to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, 
not that I didn't do things that me and my peers were doing, but again, just being around these, these older people, I think 18, it stopped. I was kind of, well, I was more mature. And it, I was also the age at which you're supposed to be on your own. And I should note that the state of Alaska did take custody, but because I stayed in school and and I, they let me pick where I wanted to live. So they, I just don't think they knew I was hitchhiking down the West Coast <laughs> with a guy friend. <laughs> I think I forgot to tell him I was doing that. Um, I'm sorry, um, Michael Geisler, my, who is my wonderful social worker. They just, you know, they're so used to dealing with, difficult situations that the kid who wanted to go to school was like, Oh my God, thank God um, for them. Yeah. Maybe not high on the priority list. Right. I was okay. You know, aside from that stupid thing, uh, you know, during the summer I did live with families after that and went to school. So I read that parts of your book, Johnny's Girl, originally appeared in a three-part story in the Anchorage Daily News in 1987. Yes. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, well, um, that's a big story. Um, I owe the Daily News everything. I owe Howard Weaver, Pat Doherty, Gary Nielsen, and the people who supported that everything. Um, it it started as a, uh, we were coming on, I had was then a feature writer and I was working for uh, a editor, a guy named Gary Nielsen, still a fine journalist, uh, I believe still with the Charlotte Observer. Um, he, had, he was a new features editor had been hired and he was from originally, I believe from Connecticut. Now I knew that my dad was from Connecticut, but that is about all I knew. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I didn't know much about my dad at all. And I never talked about my dad, you know, my, my, my family, and most people probably didn't at my age anyways, I was, I was, uh, I had been at the paper a couple of years, two, three years at that point, worked through the Metro desk, did various things and then found myself in the features side, which is turned out to be where I belonged. And I would just talk to Gary about things that he would talk about covering the mob on the East coast. And I would talk about my dad. It gave me an opportunity to talk, tell him stories. And, you know, my dad wasn't a member of organized crime. Um, you know, he was kind of just one of these guys doing stuff on his own. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, anyway, the 10th anniversary of the completion of the trans Alaska pipeline was coming up in 87 and in 86, the paper was starting to already think about how are we going to commemorate that? And this is back in what some people might call the golden years at the Daily News when it was considered a writer's paper. And it was just a really, you know, we, we had the newspaper war going on and it was just a, you know, it's still a great place to work. It's always, newsrooms are always, especially there is always a great place to work. But at any rate, um, I was tagged to write uh, from the features section and they came up with the idea, I'm not sure how, that I would write about how, how it affected vice in Anchorage, which I thought was kind of funny. It's like, yeah, I know a lot about that because of my dad, you know, and me, I've, you know, I've been running the rackets for a while, but anyway, I was like, uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I know. All right, I'll figure it out. <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, yeah, you, you know me, I, that's my character. Um, but at any rate, I went in literally files. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this, but files used to be in paper and in a, in a <laughs> morgue. you'd go into a library and we had a 
fabulous librarian and we had these files and I started, well, let me, I, so my first thing was, well, let me see what was written about it. And it just so happened, of course, that the Daily News had covered the vice trades, if you will, extensively during construction of the pipeline, prostitution, gambling, the nightclub world, all those things. And all these, and they did a big takeout on at one point, the mob moves in because there was these unexplained deaths, my father's being one of them. Um, and, you know, nobody, there was always this idea that the mob was moving in. And I always used to joke, see, we're big time. The thing about Alaska back then, and I don't, I, now that I think about it, I don't know if it's still true. It's like we had to prove we always had like sort of a, you know, a a uh, uh, self-confidence problem. It mm -hmm. was like, well, I don't know if we're really good enough. Oh, but wait, we're world class. The mob is moving in. Yeah. Um, they want to be here just like in Vegas. Um, and well, there was a lot of money and there was, I guess, that's a whole other subject about mob like things going on, but not from where you would think it was coming from. Um, but uh at any rate, uh, so, and, but the first thought I was struck with was we've already done this stories. We've done it. I couldn't, that's just what I thought. I said, there's nothing new to add to this. I will just be rehashing old stuff. And then, um, I was supposed to have a lunch with my editor, Gary, and tell him what I was going to do. And then we we're going to set the deadline, which was six weeks. And, uh, I don't know. It was like, it was truly one of those moments in life where it was just sort of serendipity or epiphany. I just, it just occurred to me, I'll write about my dad. And we sat down for our lunch and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, and it's gonna, you know, I'm sure I said something like this is going to sound crazy or I don't know why I'm thinking of this. And I said, I'm thinking of writing about my dad and his response. And I still remember it. Now he was, we were hoping you would say that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how I remember it at any rate. I'm like, yeah. And so that, that started the series and I just started doing research. I just started going, following one lead after the other talk. Oh, you need to talk to this guy. That's what everybody would say. You'd call somebody and then they said, well, you, but you should go talk to so-and-so. He owned the such and such bar. And I just started doing that. And I would come home every, come home, come back to the newsroom every day with some other totally irrelevant to the time story about something from 15 years earlier yeah. and Gary was captivated by it. And, and so pretty soon we just threw out the six week deadline and we didn't even know what we were doing at that point, but he said, just keep doing it. And they let me work on it for six months. Um, and, um, that's amazing. Yeah. I was really, I'll, I'll never ever be anything but eternally grateful, uh, to my, my uh, superiors and everyone there at the paper um, who had to put up with that. <laughs> <laughs> and then literally, I mean, I, the best part about in some ways the story is, you know, and I went through all these different editors. I just started telling the story that began with my parents arriving in Alaska, you know, and uh, uh, actually it began at, you know, <laughs> I take that back. Well, the, I, I get the book and the series confused, but I think it, yeah, it did begin with them arriving. The book begins with me as a reporter because I literally ran across a newspaper clipping that I had called the paper about to complain when I was 16 and said that they, they ran, a, my father was missing and they were following it. And then there was a little story saying they've got no leads or something. I can't remember why they had that, but it, it said that it, they thought it was tied to gambling. And I, I just knew it wasn't. I don't know why, but I called the reporter and said, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know why. I was mouthy. Still am. Um, <laughs> anyway, so um, 
Yeah, so we just literally, the when we had this meeting about, okay, what do we put on the top of this story to tell people why we're telling it? Um, we came up with a lot of highfalutin ideas. You know, oh, it's the history of Alaska, the frontier. It's the quintessential American story. You know, immigrants and then tragedy. And, and I, you know, and nothing worked. And then finally, I don't know who said it. It might have been uh, David Hewlin or somebody said, you know, how about it's just the story of me and my dad. And we had no idea what response would be and we just went with that that's great it was a big moment and it was a big series and I always like to remind people um I was just you know when I was with up there I, I was with my friend who I was staying with and we'd go places and invariably somebody will bring up the book and I started to feel a little guilty so I was trying to get these you know you know, well, Cindy here you know I mean when I'm with people let's talk about them and let's talk about you um and then I had, you know, and I just finally said, I said, Cindy, I'm really sorry if it seems like all our conversations drift to that with other people. <laughs> and, um, but then I tried, I just said, but you know, sometimes I think it's okay. My parents both died young. This was for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like, you know, as you were interviewing people and writing those stories for ADN back in the eighties, do you feel like you were also learning more about your life oh absolutely it was i was once things took off and i thought you know before i knew it i had you know through another through jeff lowenfels who i'm also eternally grateful to and adore him and his family um you know we had a producer right when the series ran he remembered some of that from when he first came up and right after the series ran he sent it to a producer friend that he went to summer camp with as a kid in New York. And anyway, things sort of snowballed from there. He wanted to option the rights to the story, my life rights, make a movie, you know, all this stuff. And when, um, at any rate, um, uh, you know, it, things just, as they took off, and then next thing you know, I, I said, well, I want to write a book. And of course, never having done that, I thought, what, what did you just say? And he said, well, I'll get you a literary agent. So next thing I know, you know, everything, it, well, not next thing. It took six months to create what my lit, what the literary agent that I signed with felt was a saleable book proposal. It, it took me a long time to get it, and we all worked on it. And after it's sold and after I'm under contract to write this book, my first book, you know, I'm 28 maybe, 29, mm -hmm. um, still am. Uh, but at any rate, uh, I never aged anyway. Um, but, uh, uh, once I had that, you know, I'm kind of on deadline the whole time and I was on contract. And, um, so I'm literally a friend of mine said, one of my closest friends said, you know, the book had sort of a mystery quality to it because I was literally finding out things as I'm writing it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I might've been a more mature writer now, I don't, you know, there's sort of, when things come together, I was not ready uh, in some ways, but you can't say come back in five years, you know, mm -hmm. let me, let me, um, but I'm, I, I don't know that I would have wanted to have done it any other way because it's sort of like, um, Mike Dugan, another dear friend and mentor once said, you know, a spider doesn't contemplate its whole web. It just goes from one part to another mm -hmm. and I, I think I would have been too overwhelmed by the task if I understood what I was getting into <laughs> and the ramifications of it all 
in terms of my work and what I wanted to do. You know, you, you alluded to something earlier and I realized that I had a question about it. Um, I think that there are certain parts about living in Alaska, you know, living in the cities that can create identity issues for some people because there's this cross between how are we relevant and how do we fit into the larger culture of the United States? And it seems like you had some ideas about that, or or at least you've thought about it. Wow. Oh, completely. In fact, I was thinking about it even recently talking to our dear friend, Aaron. Um, I did have a strong sense at the time for a couple things. I remember I used to, I moved to Juneau, for example, and was down there for a few years. Um, after graduating high school, I worked for the legislature. I got a job as a page in the house and, um, and then ended up, you know, taking classes at the university there. But, you know, you'd say to people who came up from wherever, they'd say, oh, where are you from? And I'd say Anchorage. Oh, we hate Anchorage. Oh, Anchorage is a pit. Right. You know, and I'm like, it, and I'm like, yeah, but it's in Alaska. Well, it's, it's you know, Alaska's five minutes from Anchorage. And I'm like, or 15 minutes. I'm like, no, it's actually part of Alaska, better for worse. And I didn't like the denial of it. And I think, I think that struck a personal chord for me because, and I, I think now that you've just asked this question, I really start to understand. I mean, I'm very empathetic with, but what it's like to not, to be um, unorthodox, to be things, uh, to be trans right now in this world, for example, mm-hmm. and, and and things like that. And I, you know, people, if, if anyone's denying the existence or seem to think it's not legitimate, which is, you know, outrageous and a I, you know, that anything that exists, then you say, well, that can't be, well, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. what's your problem with this? Um, you know, I don't know if I articulated that well, but I do have, you know, I feel like, you know, history always, most journalists would feel this way. I'm sure. Um, you know, history, you know, you have the chamber of commerce, if you will, version of history. And I knew what had been written, you know, about, Alaska, and I felt that, you know, that we were part of Alaska, that I was part of Alaska, that my parents were part of Alaska, that that there was a lot of that. And, you know, after the book, I heard from a lot of people. There were still some who would make this distinction, which I always, you know, I think that there must be, I haven't thought this out, so bear with me, but I, I think there must be some human trait where we have to somehow feel we're different, perhaps even better than others, you know. Um, and I think that, you know, some of us, I, you know, are better at ignoring that or realize we don't really need that, or that's silly or Mm -hmm. whatever. It's, it's a complex thing I'm trying to describe, but I would have people say things like, well, you know, we weren't, my dad wasn't into any of that stuff. He was a, and I'd hear about what an upstanding good person they were. And I thought, that's great. That's Mm -hmm. normal. Yeah. My, my father in our life was, um, abnormal, if not even abnormal, it just wasn't what you know, would pass as, and I don't even like the word normal in this context, but as what a lot of families were like. But then you come to find out that, you know, a lot of damage and a lot of bad things happen in a lot of families that looked, you know, all for all intents and purposes, really great. And you look at something like my dad and, and while some things happened there, the, the worst things that happened there were not what he chose to do for a living. Who cares? I mean, except that affected me because he'd leave every night and I was home alone. I hated it. Um, every kid would hate that. Um, yeah. 
And he left me with a big dog, so that was good. I had a protector. I had a nanny, like they do in Peter Pan. <laughs> and, uh, and and but um, uh, you know, I um, I think I felt illegitimate, and he was in fact illegitimately born, my father. And I think that that haunted him his whole life. Uh, and I think for me, I think it gave me. I felt like I didn't belong. I guess. You know, if that makes any sense. And so I do think it's an identity issue. Whatever your issue is, I think that anytime there's any denial of that um, is felt very personally. And it's wrong because, mm-hmm. you know, people exist in a community. Communities are really multi-layered. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you know, and again, you know, my father is a very complex man and he wasn't a hero. You know, he was a hero because he wanted to be a dad. He was a hero because he wanted to raise me. He was a hero because he took custody. But he had a bad temper. So for a period of time in my teens, when I started saying, I hate you, you know, I raised teens and I would think about, oh, my God, this is what it was like for him. And I would hear that Mm -hmm. from my own teens going, what? You know, and you just, (laughs) I mean, if you're at all like, you know, if you have any abandonment issues, you really fall apart. (laughs) At the same time, you're trying to hold your ground. Uh, But at any rate, um, you know, he hit me and, and beat me. And I even don't even like using that word until I left home and went to the authorities. um, And then it stopped. And he went to counseling and, you know, and and did a lot of things. I mean, he actually changed, which was amazing. He didn't hit me all the time, like from a small child, not that it makes it okay. I mean, it's a hard thing to talk about Mm -hmm. without, I think the only difference is I never became a victim. You know, um, I got, I got out. I had a really good school counselor. And back then it was amazing. You could show up to school with all kinds of bruises and nothing happened. Hmm. (laughs) It's like, wow. They were still paddling kids with wooden boards in middle school, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, oh, my God. Um, no wonder a lot of them became criminals. Um, but uh, I can't even believe that now, that other people could hit your child. 13, 14-year-old boy. I mean, talk about, you know, the hitting. Forget that. How about the humiliation? But anyway, I do, I do think it's really relevant. And I do think about, you know, getting a place at the table of my, you know, of a community. Everyone belongs. Mm-hmm. They should. Yeah, I agree. Not criminals, mind you. No, just, <laughs> we won't even get into that. I don't even know where to go. I hope I've said something coherent here. You know, a couple things. Your book, Johnny's Girl, really, really connected with me on a personal level because, you know, in so many different ways, I grew up in the snowboard and skateboard culture in Alaska and so much of that culture, not just in Alaska, but just the culture in general throughout the world, it's kind of made up of these, of these outcasts. And I think that at least in Alaska, cause I can speak for Alaska, there were a lot of kind of petty criminals, you know, that, that were involved in, maybe they weren't skateboarding or snowboarding, but they were, you know, they were in association with it. And so those were kind of a lot of the people that uh, my dad would bring around to stay the night at my house or, you know, so I was, I was kind of, I was really around all of that and that kind of seedier underground of Anchorage, not to the extent of, of you and your dad by any means, but um, 
I mean, maybe a little bit though. I mean, not, yeah. not, not like, I wouldn't discount it. <laughs> or yeah. Say, yeah. But th- you know, that really, that really connected with me. And, you know, something that I was thinking of is as I was reading your book, you know, I found myself just taking all of these notes. You know, I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to interview you. I was just like, I'm just connecting with this book on like such a personal wow, level. This is you know? really cool. And I've never heard a story quite like yours. So this is cool. So those notes, there were questions, there were comments, there were observations about Anchorage in the 60s and the 70s. And I found myself recognizing a lot of your descriptions, not only the people that were brought into my life when I was a kid, but how you describe certain things like downtown Anchorage and and the language that you used, you know, that was like meshing with my understanding of growing wow. up in Anchorage in the nineties. And I was wondering if, wow, I'm just really, that's cool. That's really cool. Hey, Howard, if Howard's listening, listen to this. Look, we're, it's, it's, it's generational. It, works. <laughs> it, even, it even, wow. Our, our instincts were right. That is amazing, though, to me to think that because in the '90s, I I was living in a completely different Anchorage, of course. I wonder if Anchorage, in some ways, has this evergreen quality to it. Well, probably, maybe because you know the old adage is you know people. I mean, it's a great, it's an amazing, beautiful tourist destination. I mean, every time I go up there and I just like, oh, it's so pretty here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, to say the least, um, to understatement of the year. But um, <laughs> but it's also always been known as a place that people go to start over to run away from stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's it doesn't strike me as much that kind of place now because it's just, it's, you know, I think of how Alaska was defined even in the nineties. I think the city had a PR campaign where it called, you know, big wild Alaska or big, mm-hmm. you know, like, so it was a really much attracting, you know, people into the outdoors and, and, and these were, you know, I, I should have, I'm old enough, you know, I should have had, I had my kids later in life. So my kids would be like your age. And so I would have been my friends all raised kids who are your age. And, and they were raised, um, you know, in Anchorage, uh, in in whatever culture, you know, they were into, which probably involved part of back, you know, sort of the nature, appreciation of nature, uh, outdoors activities, skiing, mm-hmm. cross-country skiing, downhill skiing, um, hockey, whatever, you know, whatever th- thing that they were into, um, you know, depending on you know, if they grew up there and such, they're, you know, what, what kind of careers their parents had carved out for themselves or had um, dictated, you know, about the upbringing, of course. Um, but I, you know, as you say that, I think I'm trying to, and I just never would have imagined that, that what you just described, and yet it makes perfect sense to me. So I think there still is a, you know, it's, I think the senses things are, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but I wonder if it's that people think they can be a little freer up there. That was mm-hmm. always the thing we talked about in the past. I mean, 30 years ago, hey, I can go up there and do anything. And then, but if I go back home, I got to behave a little better. Um, but I haven't thought about that with what, what I would consider a modern anchorage of the last 20, even 30 years since uh, the book first came out. Um but there may still be that idea of it's a little freer up there, you know, that you, and so maybe some of these things might happen, but, you know, I knew, 
you know, when you're describing your dad. So your dad was must have been a skateboarder as well. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah. Him and my uncle Jay started a snowboard and skateboard shop called Borderline. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I never, you know, I've had friends that kids were, I mean, I think uh, some of them I might even be make made or tried to, or were for a long time. That was their career was snowboarding. Uh, I wasn't sure how it paid, but you know, if I could, you know, why not? Um, but <laughs> much to the chagrin of their parents, I think, <laughs> but uh, now, how long are we doing this for <laughs> here? Anyway, uh, you know, um, and I, I, I mean, I'm really, I mean, I think it's really cool that you related to the book that it, it that just, I have to, I'm going to have to think about this for a while, you know, and I want to have more conversations with you. And I'm sure you have even more questions and it sounds to me like you probably even have a book in you. I mean, I don't know that anyone's written anything about growing up like that. And I think it's really compelling. I I mean, I can't, you know, me, I see a skateboarder and I think, hey, there's a young guy. Well, you use your dad. Yeah. <laughs> you know? He's probably my age or maybe even younger than me by some years. But um, I never would have thought it was, um, I mean, unless, you know, in case, you know, unless it's someone famous. No, there's, what's his name? You know, Sean White's son, you know. Oh, yeah, there he had a kid, of course. Now he's whatever he is. Yeah. Um, but uh that just seems interesting to me that I, I, cause I don't know anything about that. Um, I mean, one thing I was struck with, and maybe this defines it a little bit. I graduated from stellar alternative, but I still went to the, I would have otherwise graduated East high. And so I, I started going to their um, reunions with the 10th cause I knew so many people from it from middle school mm-hmm. and I've gone to every, ex, every one except one, I think the last one. And, um, I um one of the things that I've been struck with is how poor so many of my fellow students grew up. How large their families were, how small their houses were, how tough it was for them. And I just I'm wondering if the kids you ran around with were similar circumstances. You know, I think that uh, I was just surprised with how many kids came from homes that were probably really hard scrabble lives you know um and that might tend to lend itself and then also i was surprised we've we lost kids my generation were involved in burglaries as teenagers and one got shot to death Mm. you know like at at 15 you're like what are you doing what are you doing what was really beautiful about the snowboard and skateboard scene in alaska in the 90s and early 2000s was that everybody involved was seen as like on an even playing field. You know, we were, we were all hanging out. There was nobody really judging outside of, you know, the, the typical shit talking to each other, you know, which is always just kind of playful. But outside of that, everybody was, you know, everybody got along. And so that, that I think probably helped us, not look at maybe their family life you know you wouldn't be aware you know what and you wouldn't be aware of it probably till later even now Mm -hmm. you know i just as a friend of mine once said you could be the the poorest sob but you step outside and you see those mountains and suddenly it doesn't matter you know you don't even know it and that's what i think is probably the case 
how would you describe Anchorage in the 60s and the 70s? Oh, well, you know, I even wonder what it was like for you in the 90s. A place of great optimism, great hope. Mm -hmm. There was always this thing coming. This big thing was coming, always. Uh, maybe, maybe there's still always that, now that I think about it. Um, but we grew up anticipating, let's see, in the 60s, there was always the search for oil on the slope. So I didn't know anything about this. This was history I had to learn. But there was this sense that, I mean, by the time I became aware of my surroundings at about 13, you know, as a young teenager, I mean, they had already struck oil, you know, on in Prudhoe Bay. And they had already had the big oil lease sale. And so when I became of age, um, then again, began aware, became aware of something outside of my immediate surroundings. Uh, you know, we just grew up with this idea that there was, there was money and everyone was going to do well. And, you know, so that's the one thing that I think we were really lucky to grow up with that. And the other thing is, and I, and you can tell me if this was still the case. I think people grew up in Anchorage because we're not sort of part of the, the rest of the country, you know, geographically we're connected, but we're far away. Um, I think we sort of, I mean, I know I grew up this sense that we could do anything. Mm -hmm. There was no social structure in place that kept us from, doing what we wanted to do, mm -hmm. whatever yeah. it was, we were going to do it. And that's what I grew up with. And I think my peers did as well. And I don't know that that's true everywhere. I mean, I remember when we were working on the book or the pre, like when I started getting calls from agents and stuff and the producer, and at one point we were doing research, um, my, Jeff Lowenfels and I, and he called, I think it was his a brother who lived in New York City, and he said, hey, do you have a number for so-and-so? And I don't know who it was. And he goes, well, Jeff, you can't call him. He's a big shot, <laughs> he said. And I'll never forget that. I thought, well, yeah, we can. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't know that we got the number, and I don't know if we called him about whoever it was. But I don't think Alaskans, and certainly living there, and the people who maybe come there, that might be what distinguishes them, have a sense of they're hemmed in by anything. You know, maybe because it, I don't know if that sense of, of that still was there when you were growing up. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That was definitely okay. there. Yeah. Yeah. We were, you, there was a sense that we're unique, we're special, we're, you know, literally above everyone. <laughs> we, we, you know, and in fact, there was, a, that's right. There was a magazine story. I think it was in the, one of the New York Times magazine, I believe, uh, and or maybe some other uh, maybe the someone had written a story. They'd come up there for some reason. I can't remember what the story was about, but it was in the last couple of years. And they began with the lead that said Alaskans see themselves as so apart from the rest and separate and even, I don't know if you use the word special, that they refer to the rest of us, the rest of the country as the outside. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, he's right. That's beautiful. <laughs> and, you know, the outside. It was sort of like one of those horror movies. You can't go into the woods. That's where, yeah. you know. But, yeah, so I think that defines Anchorage then. And, yeah, so I would say optimism, feeling special, different, above, uh, and also being torn between wanting to be there because it was special and wanting to get the hell out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. Maybe that's everywhere where kids grow up, you know. Yeah. I had a friend. I wrote about it in the series and I think he's in the book, Malcolm Brown, who was 10 years older than me. 
and he was saying how they used to listen to the animals. We got to get out of this place at West High. And it's like, we got to get out of here, you know? And I, I, I don't know if that's true for everywhere. I mean, I suppose if you're living in Beverly Hills, do you say, I got to get out of Beverly Hills? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, that's how I would describe it. You know, what's really kind of eerie with this conversation is, and maybe, maybe it really just comes back to how much I connected with your book, but your philosophy or your maybe just ever growing philosophy about Anchorage, about Alaska, about the way, maybe articulating the way that we feel about Alaska, um, really is it just meshes with mine so well. And this, just this, this journey that I've been on, um, to understand, you know, my upbringing, my understanding of the place that I grew up in, the people that I grew up around and maybe being a little frustrated, but also learning to like really appreciate that upbringing. Um, you, you brought up kind of this, this feeling of superiority, which I think that it, it just gets to this, this idea of localism Yes, that, that is so prominent or so prevalent in Alaska. But I think that that feeling is okay. If you mature past the idea that you think you're better than another person, basically coming to the conclusion that I'm just really proud of where I'm from. Well, you know, yeah, and I think that it, it is prevalent everywhere because Anchorage thought they were better than Fairbanks and Fairbanks thinks yeah. Anchorage is just horrible. And yeah. you go down to Juneau, you know, there's all these regional rivalries. It it exists here where I, I live. I'm, I like to say staying. You know, I, I'm in Lafayette, Louisiana, and you talk to people from Louisiana and they'll say, well, you know, southern Louisiana is okay. It, it's the, it is truly the part that's like another country. Mm-hmm. It's very European. You got, I'm in the, I always tell people I'm in the French part. Unless you're thinking of Mississippi burning, Mississippi is a state just due east of us. But, you know, and then you go to Mississippi and you discover, oh, it's the new south. You know, I'm, I have the damnedest time trying to describe the south to people. Not that it's all great or it's all bad, but that it's anything other than, you know, these cliches that we have about places. Um, but I, uh, I, at any rate, you know, here they do, they think the Northern, you know, oh no, Northern Louisiana is, it might as well be Arkansas, you know, as if that's the worst <laughs> thing in the world, <laughs> you know, it's just funny, yeah. you know, and I think that, you know, I once said, you know, there's one thing people like having and, and making sure everybody knows they have one and that's a backstage pass, mm-hmm. you know, if you, yep. you know, if you, cause there you are at the concert and you got this pass and you're walking around and when you want to get out of the crowd, you can just go right in there and they just let you right back there. And there's sort of an, I think in life we sort of, oh, strangely, I don't know what the adaptation is for survival or where this comes from, mm-hmm. but yeah, you do have to you move past sort of the petty parts of it and then realize, oh my God, we're all just poor schmoes and you know, <laughs> terrible things, terrible things are going to happen to us. Good things are going to happen to us. And, you know, just like anybody, nobody, nobody's immune to, you know, the, the ravages of life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, for what it's worth, I find myself saying these days, I said, I think I'm finally mellowing into the person I always wanted to be. You know, because I tend to be really excitable and, you know, I tend to shoot off my mouth when I shouldn't and, you know, dominate things like 
this whole thing we're doing now. But, you know, I, I, instead of just saying, I don't know, you know, to people, I say, well, you know, part of that is being the journalist. I look everything up. So now I'm going to say, well, you know, actually, that's not true. You know, it's like, who cares? Just shut up, Kim. <laughs> just keep your mouth shut. You know, my dad's my dad's isms, the things that he had said to me as a kid, I was thinking of them again when I was in Anchorage. It's funny, you ask, you know, what does, does it feel like it or do I think about it? In fact, I did. I kept thinking because I was thinking about myself as, you know, and the way I communicate with people. And, you know, again, I was feeling guilty because I was with this friend and people would bring up the book. And now suddenly it's Kim, 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 Kim. I was like, no, no, my friend Cindy here. Let's talk about her for a while. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my dad used to say, you know, three things. Uh, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> uh, uh, don't trust people. Don't trust anyone. And um, don't snitch. And, well, I never worried about the snitching part. <laughs> um, and I do trust people more than I should. I never liked that. But I think keeping my mouth shut is pretty good advice. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of places probably also do have this sense that you're exceptional, you know. Um, and they, they tend to overlook or gloss over the hard things or the bad things about the place. You know, New York City. New York City is mostly Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Staten Island. And these are all great places with great stories and great, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, but most people just think of one part of New York and that's Manhattan. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. You know, and uh, it's not all it is, you know, and it's some hard. New York is like a great place and a hard place to be, you know, um, having lived there for three years. You know, you could be having the best day and the worst day of your life in the same day, <laughs> on the same block even. Um, but I guess that describes anywhere. How often do you think about your dad? Hmm. I'd say often. I'd say echoes of him when I'm maybe when I'm so, when I'm reflecting about who I am or how I'm trying to better myself, he comes to mind. Um, there are things that can, there There were things about him that were, in the end, near the end, he because became a tyrant and he'd gotten physical. And I was, I was speaking of fear. I mean, um, there are things that can come up that viscerally put me right back in that place of feeling afraid um, because of the way, because of his hitting me and his temper. Uh, you know, I was talking about this with somebody and when I was up in Anchorage, it's funny, your questions just hit right upon everything that happened in, the, in that trip. Um, but, uh, and I'm relieved not when that, when I feel that way, when I feel that same fear, that visceral, une really bad anxiety and unease and fear, I realize how bad it had been near the end with him and how much afraid of him I had become and how, I was glad to be out from that. I mean, when he died, you know, I was very philosophical as teenagers can be. I thought, you know, if he hadn't died and if he had, say, taken up hitting me again, he, he could have really destroyed my character mm -hmm. or whoever I, you know, I, I don't want to sound, um, you know, be, you know, too much hyperbole here, but um, it was a terror. It's a terrible thing to live in that kind of fear of someone. Yeah. And uh, I've been, I, I encounter it 
in emotional ways with people, if that makes any sense. Certain situations, it'll come back. Like if an old man, this is a weird thing, of old, if somebody starts yelling at me, a stranger or something, it's, I, I have this like visceral reaction to it. Mm-hmm. And I also tend to have a really strong fight or flight. I don't flight, I fight. <laughs> but at the wrong thing, you know, again, back to the, you know, United Airlines, what do you mean I'm not going to get a cookie? You know, and then I, <laughs> I fight at the wrong things. Anyway, uh, yeah, so that's a very, um, that's probably about one of the most personal answers I've ever given. When you reached the age that your dad died at, did you, did you have any thoughts, you know, and this question comes from kind of on the other end of the spectrum. When I reached 27 years old and that was the age that my mom was when she had me, I, I just, it it felt like it opened up a whole new world for me of understanding of of my mom you know as a person not just a mom yes yes very much yeah i wonder if maybe you reached a certain kind of opening of a world or at least understanding of a world or or maybe something else when you reached the age that your dad passed away well uh both my parents um uh when i yes um when I became a mother, I I postponed motherhood for a lot of different reasons, but certainly when I became a mother, I understood um, my mother better. She was a great mom. They both did a really good job the first six years, which is why I'm not in prison, I think. (laughs) Um, You know, because they say the most important years are birth to three, and man, they did it. They nailed it. You know, they were married. We lived in the same house. I lived in the same house till I was six. They, you know, they worked, we had good childcare, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of jobs they had, they were good parents. Mm -hmm. And when I had my children and understood that, and I understood it before when I was working on Johnny's Girl, I mean, I had a lot of insights from my own counselors and talking to other people about my, you know, my mother's mental illness. She was in a convalescent period. She had had symptoms between 18 and 20. deep depression and problems and even hospitalized. And then in her early, after living with my dad for six years in Alaska, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she had begun to fall apart again and was schizophrenic. And that's when the symptoms would show uh, when she was eventually hospitalized and institutionalized. But I wondered, you know, as a parent, it's sort of horrifying for me to think, I mean, I get really sad when I think how hard it was for her to have been separated from me and to never have really seen me much again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think about her. So I think it's, we have to mention her, but my dad, oh yeah, he died at 40. I mean, it sounded old until I got to 40 mm-hmm. and I went, oh my God, it's so young. Yeah. It's so, I, I do wonder like when I'm with his friend, Al, I wonder, you know, if he had lived, what kind of person he would have been, when he got into old age, would he have lived to old age? Would he have mellowed? Would he have gone straight? Because some of his friends did. And that's exactly the language they would use. Um, you know, uh, would he have remarried, had kids or something? I think he wouldn't have minded doing all that. But, you know, 
it, it's hard to think about the what ifs because there isn't any. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I once had a high school kid ask me. I was there speaking. A teacher had brought me in. And they said, it was an interesting question. He said, well, if none of this had happened, then you wouldn't have had this book. And I went, okay. I thought about it and I went, yeah, but it did. And I can't change that. Mm-hmm. So I can't even imagine the the... You know, but I do think that when we become our parents' age, we definitely can see what the life was like, and we have a little more empathy for them, yeah. right? Yeah, twenty-seven. Your mom is young, and yeah, yeah, they're great people. You know, they're people, not just parents. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of cool to discover them that way. And something else that I've gotten in the habit of doing, and I, I feel like it's healthy, is that, um, or is not thinking about hypotheticals too much. No. You know, what what happened happened and it's because of those things that I am the person that I am today and what's important is to focus on the now and the future. I totally agree. I think hypotheticals are a waste of time unless they're being used for some good reason, not in your own life, because what is, is, and was, was. And I think it's important to understand, for me, for me personally, out of working on Johnny's Girl, the important thing for me was to understand how my parents ended the way they did and what had happened to them. So so I could understand me and my place in the world, because I just, I still have sort of this sense of, you know, like, everyone just disappeared, you know? Mm -hmm. And that must have been uh, uh, a really rough description of what it must have been like at six years old when my mom left my dad and brought me back to her hometown of Arnwood, Michigan. And the next thing I know, she was gone, you know, uh, and these were really great parents, <laughs> you know, and um, thus began, you know, why Kim yells so much. <laughs> <laughs> the period of, I'm sorry, people, it's not my fault. I was spoiled. They did spoil me too. So I am a spoiled rotten brat. And they nicknamed me the little monster when I was a toddler. And I think that was a pretty apt description <laughs> um, of every toddler, I suspect. But uh, God love them. And I do love children um, of all ages. But uh, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, hypotheticals. I mean, you know, I think it's important to know who your parents were, to get a sense of them as people, not just parents. We all sort of need that. And once you do that, then you can, you know, you can let go of things, mm-hmm. right? To me, it's like letting go of things. It's like remembering, but not, you know, reliving the feelings, mm-hmm. you know, that were negative, if that makes any sense. Do you think your parents still influence you in any ways? Yes. My dad had his own rules and a certain amount of integrity, if you will, about commitment and loyalty. Um, and my mother just did her great mothering and her, um, you know, when I was a mother, I was really, really good at the early years. My husband was better in the teen years because he had a more conventional teen life. <laughs> Me, you know, I'm, you know, I'm at the, you know, I took, we talked about that earlier. I'm, you know, bopping around the country, mm-hmm. hitchhiking at, at different times or at the Greyhound bus station at 16 in Los Angeles, or for that matter, uh, Skogie, Oklahoma. So when I was about 18, I mean, I was like, holy cow. Um, so, uh, you know, I think they definitely influenced me as a parent. 
and what I knew to be important and what I learned, uh, and just in my, um, you know, my general sense of who I am, my part about me that works, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. kind of way down deep. Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, growing up, you spent a lot of your upbringing in Alaska with gamblers. And in my experience, gamblers have a tendency to be superstitious. Do you have any superstitions? No. No. Uh, we once, my dad once got a couple of cats. They were Siamese. He was always getting pets, weird pets at times. I'm not sure. Mostly dogs. He was a dog lover. But I remember he got these cats. And, and then we had to get rid of them because certain gamblers thought they were bad luck. I have, we've rescued a bunch of cats, more than we should, but um, we've always, I've had cats most of my adult life. Uh, I don't think I have any, let me think, do I have any superstitions? No, nothing really, no. Other than, um, I don't even know if that's a, no, I don't think I do. I have, I have my own idea of what my faith is, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, if I, if if I had to, I mean, my father came from a Jewish background. Um, my mother was Catholic, so I'm a little of both. I mean, I'm not really much of a Catholic these days, but I have memories of it, you know? Um, but, uh, uh, and I spent not a lot of time with it, uh, if you will. Um, but no, I don't think so. No, I, I, and I don't gamble at all. I have no desire to, I have no interest in it. Uh, with all due respect, I, I never wanted to go on a cruise. I've been on one, I took my grandfather on a brief one years ago. And I mean, last thing I'm going to do is the last thing I want to be around is a bunch of bars, if you will, casinos and gambling. Although I, Mm -hmm. I like when you're in there and it's like, oh, it's brightly lit and it's really fun. Yeah. Uh, can they play music and we can dance? That'll be great. Um, but, (laughs) uh, I don't gamble. I've done a little when I've been in a casino here and there, but it's, not really interest me at all. I don't like wanting, uh, I understand it's entertainment. That's fine. I don't have a problem with it. I don't judge people who do it. Uh, and I, and I don't want to be like cruises don't interest me because I don't want to have to like go to the casino and cause that's doesn't interest me. And I don't want to have all the food I can eat in front of me. Cause that's just like, you know, no, yeah. <laughs> you won't be, you'll have to roll me off this ship. then. <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to have me lift by a crane at the, at the shipyard. <laughs> You know, they'll send down one of those big nets and like, oh, there she goes. Uh, (laughs) It'll be bad. (laughs) How about law enforcement? How do you feel about them? Because I, I, I feel like because of your dad's run-ins with the law, as a kid, you were kind of ambivalent or wary about law enforcement. You know, ironically, um, I have a great deal of respect for them. I mean, I'm friends with still uh, Jim Vaden, who solved my father's crime, mm-hmm. who is very important to me, uh, who I did a retirement story on him. He was part of the, 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 he was like a key when I, I always said I would write about my dad. It was something I said at 16. That's how I was going to deal with everything that had happened. You know, I write about this in the book. I, I never went to the trials. I didn't I didn't seek like a sense of wholeness or justice through any of that. I didn't want anything to do with anything and I walked away from it. Mm-hmm. And um, but as I became an adult and certainly a reporter and I started, you know, my skills, I was, you know, I was thinking, you know, I'd just run into things here and there. And when I ran into Jim Vaden and I was doing his retirement story, 
I asked him, it just dawned on me, I said, hey, you know, I heard something about an FBI rap sheet. And I said, do you think you could get me my father's FBI rap sheet? <laughs> and I just asked him and he said, yeah, but you're going to be disappointed. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, he wasn't as bad as you think he was. And he was right. It was all misdemeanor crimes. Um, but yeah, so things like that would happen. So I'm actually, and there's others too, that I became very fond of that used to arrest my father. Um, and they've been very candid with me. There were, you know, I think Jim was involved in closing down one of my father's quote unquote legitimate shops, which was probably going to get shut down anyway by his wholesaler. He was selling sewing machines and vacuums and they were coming up through a gray market through Canada or something. And the, you know, the other, the dealer who had the license to sell it, it was supposed to be the exclusive anyway, you know, it's business, but, mm -hmm. um, and he's, he said, you know, maybe I shouldn't have given him such a hard time, you know, cause th they called the police on him. You know, once you have a reputation, it's kind of hard to get around it, but I don't, I don't hold out any particular, like I'm not angry at police or hate them or dislike them. I just really don't want anything to, you know, I just don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> Mm -hmm. you know? And I, I, you know, um, fortunately haven't. Have you ever been hesitant to write about anybody? Yes, absolutely. I, like most journalists, I have a strong, I have a strong sense of, you know, most people these days are when I teach journalism. And so I try to teach my students, you know, let me tell you how they think, what separates them from other people who write, for example. And the one thing I read somewhere, and it's true, is ethics. And those ethics are not just, I'm a good guy or I don't cross this line, but these complex calculations you make when you're you're dealing with a source. Sometimes we fail, you know, mm -hmm. but the idea is, you know, what, why am I doing this? Why am I talking to them? How does it, you know, is it part of the story? Does it need to be? Uh, what harm may or may not come to them, you know. Um, so, I, you know, I was always acutely aware of that. Or I wanted people to talk to me. There was like a lot of people that just were not going to end up in the book because I could tell they might have had an anecdote to share, but their story wasn't, you know, you, you figure out what the story is. They call it a news hook. And if it doesn't hang on that hook, then it falls away. Mm -hmm. And it, once you're able to sort of discern that, it becomes easier to do the job, you know, so you don't go off on these tangents. Like I've had people say, well, you know, your book had a lot of great stuff, in it, but you didn't have this. And I'm like, oh, darn. But the truth was, it, whether I knew about it or not, it didn't fit. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't about my family. It wasn't about my father. It wasn't about the central story I was trying to tell. It wasn't about every mischievous or illegal thing or or the crimes that had certainly after mm -hmm. you know you just you, you you know you become adept at drawing some boundaries around the story what is the story and that's the story you try to stick to well i think that at least to me the most beautiful thing about your book is that yeah you know your dad wasn't you know the godfather and these situations that you were subjected to weren't you know really really wild they were just kind of domestically dysfunctional and i think that that really speaks to something that 
at least in my experience, like a lot of people can identify with in Alaska, because you're not just talking about some of the dysfunction that could apply to some people. You're talking about the atmosphere. You're talking about what Fourth Avenue looks like. You're talking about, you know, the the feeling of the city, you know, during that time. And, uh, you know, I, I read that book with my mom. Oh, wow. And And she was like, oh, I recognize this Anchorage. You know, and it was really cool because it jogged her memory, you know, and then she starts talking about it. Wow. That's neat. I I tell her, I really appreciate that. Um, You know, and I, and, but you know, the weird thing too, is I've had people from not even anywhere near Alaska, you know, respond to it and they found others, I guess, other parts, but, Mm -hmm. but it's mostly meaningful when people from my hometown say, yeah, I know that place. Cause you're the whole time you're writing it going, am I getting this? Am I getting this? Is this fair? Is this right? Is it, you know, uh, do I, you know, like, um, did I really offend people here? And it's okay to offend people, mm-hmm. but not just to offend them. You mm-hmm. know, um, you know, I learned a lot from Howard Weaver and, um, and still do, but, um, you know, in terms of how people respond to stories and, how it affects you as the writer of them. But um, yeah, they, you know, yeah, there wasn't, I'll tell you, here's something that like, I don't really, I'll watch mob stories like anyone else, but I have a, that's something that I'll respond viscerally to. And that might come from some past things of dealing with the more dangerous elements that you would maybe be around for a minute or two, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and I didn't recognize, but I certainly felt it at the time, didn't think about, and then it shows up in how I respond to something. Um, I don't like watching people get killed, you know? Uh, and I think that directly goes to my father, um, even though I don't have not spent a lot of time thinking about that night in that cabin when he was killed, what that was like, you know? Uh any more than, uh, you know, 20, 20, 21 children and 19 kids, two teachers, whatever. I mean, good God. Uh, but, you know, um, but yeah, it, it's not every, it's not all as, it was, it was sort of very, in many ways, minor compared to other parts of the country, you know, mm-hmm. these weren't, these guys weren't killing each other, you know, some were. As we found out, but um, for a long time that wasn't it. It was, if that makes sense. I guess they were, weren't they? <laughs> they killed my dad. But he, this, the, who, my father was not killed by people who went far back in Anchorage. He was killed by somebody who'd come up relatively recent, in sort of the pipeline era, and a real, dr- real drifter type. And the other people around him that were involved in a conspiracy were all of the the same ilk. So there you have it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't gamblers that took his life. It was other people entirely. You know, there's this story that you tell about your dad bringing Fats Domino to Alaska. And I really love that story. Um, but I guess to look, give a little background on that, the turnout was pretty slim because your dad forgot to promote the event. And I think that that story, maybe the reason that it stuck with me is because it embodies so much of that, that amateur entrepreneurial spirit 
of Alaskans that, that we were kind of talking about earlier, where everything, you know, that you can do anything, even if you really don't know how to do it. And then, then you discover that it doesn't always turn out. Yeah. Um, no, that was terrible. That might've been one of the worst things. Cause it was combining, he had a really, one of the ways he really influenced me was through music. He listened to everything. And I had a musician friend, a man named John Furman, who they're having a memorial for at the end of July in Anchorage. He was from there, but then eventually went on to the big time, if you will, you know, with a, with a man named David Bromberg back in the seventies and eighties. Um, and had albums and any rate, he once said to me that there was such a person as a listener. And I guess I would describe my dad. I never got the sense he wanted to play music, but he listened to everything. Mm -hmm. And I picked that up from him. And, um, my first major in college was music and, um, he, uh, uh, yeah. So he took this thing. He really, he, I guess it never occurred to him. And of course now it seems ludicrous that someone like Fats Domino would have been a has been. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. who wouldn't, I mean, and, and certainly I don't know if he needed to be, he, he might've done better in a nightclub, a, a run of several nights, maybe an arena, a small, even a small arena, maybe not, you know, but there was that period in time in the seventies. Let's, let's blame disco. I don't know. It might have been <laughs> disco. <laughs> I want to blame disco, even though I think it was pre-disco, but I mean, there was a period of time when there was just, you know, rock music. I don't know, but suddenly something like that, you know, who was actually the man that everyone else wanted to be or, I love living, I live near New Orleans and I love it. I think my dad would really like this. He mm -hmm. would love New Orleans. I mean, he'd love to be near the, you know, the, the roots of, you know, popular music, you know, coming out of, you know, blues and the Mississippi Delta region and all of it, and New Orleans jazz and all of it, rock, everything, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Tupelo, Mississippi, days drive away, not even, you know, where Elvis was from. Now, of yeah. course, he, he was stealing like crazy from the, the black artists, but what mm -hmm. else is new? Um, uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm out of my depth here now. But at any rate, yeah, that was really sad because, um, yeah, he just, he, he just really fell. I mean, he had to declare bankruptcy after that. And it was humiliating. I think the worst of it was, for me, as I saw him feel humiliated. And I don't think there's much else worse than being humiliated, you know, because he couldn't even pay them that night. And I saw him in a room with the manager trying to figure out what the gate receipts were and what to give, and there was nothing. I think maybe another reason why I really like that story is it's so human and it's also so vulnerable. You know, your dad was like, this, this is a big artist and all I need to do is bring him to Alaska. Yeah. And you know, if it's here, they will come kind of thing. Yeah. And what do you know? I don't know why, you know, even now it's just, there was that period of time where he fell. It was like, who's fat stamina? Who cares? Oh, you gotta be kidding me. And then mm -hmm. I think it was not long after that American graffiti came out. And, and I think that helped this revival of a recognition of the music of the fifties. 
um, which was, again, everything, right? I mean, and then after that, you could have Chuck Berry come to town and everybody wants to see him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, who who wouldn't want to see these guys? Yeah. yeah. And he was an amazing. I remember seeing him and people who were there. I've met a couple of people. Oh, my God, it was a great show. He gave He gave a full-on show as if the place was packed, you know? That's amazing. Yeah, right? I mean... I was really moved when he died. I felt like I had this sort of connection to him. The Anchorage that you describe in the book, you describe it as a neon Anchorage. And I'm not sure if that neon Anchorage really exists anymore, you know, physically neon or even existentially neon. Do you agree with that? And if you do, why do you think that is? Well, I think that's probably true. And I think because a lot of the neon came down, it wasn't preserved. I mean, imagine if somehow someone had had the forethought to say, we should keep these signs up, even if, because a lot of the business is closed. Mm -hmm. So maybe keep them somewhere. So where you could be known for having this street of neon, Mm -hmm. you know, or maybe people associated that with blue district, you know, blue light districts or red light districts. I'm not sure what you would call that, but, um, you know, uh, so I, no, I definitely don't think the neon, I mean, you know, the culture was different. Everything was different. You know, I, I, I loved how Anchorage in its early days, you know, had, you know, there it is the forties and all the streets are dirt and they had little, they had big bands playing in these bars and, you know, people get all dressed up and go, um, cause that's what everybody did. And I mean, I think people used to, like I said, really, a man would wear a suit, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, and a woman would probably wear a dress or something. Um, but yeah, I think that's, it doesn't really exist like that anymore. I mean, you don't have, they just don't even use neon, which was interesting because in the new Alaska ex, uh, permanent exhibit, there's a whole section that has all these neon signs. At the Anchorage Museum, right? Yeah, at the Anchorage Museum. And I thought, oh my gosh, that really does capture the feeling and the spirit of the town, mm-hmm. that it was a town. And I thought that I thought that new whole exhibit is brilliant because it finally really captured um, all the different aspects of Alaska. And I thought it really showed um, the breadth of culture, you know, native Alaskan as well as urban versus rural versus untouched wilderness versus touched wilderness. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think all those things are important because I, I just don't like, you know, myths are nice for storytelling but I think it's just really important to see places as they are, you know, uh, or as opposed to how you want them to be or you think they should be. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just do think that that's important. Something unique about Alaska is how much things get cycled through. And I wonder if it has to do with Alaska being so transient. Ah, you know, exactly. And that's why it was easy. I always used to think when I came back there and would live there as an adult, um, you know, off and on throughout my life, I would um, always think, thank goodness, this is a constantly changing place. Mm -hmm. Because I wouldn't want to live in my dad's anchorage. Uh, And uh, 
I like that it was the new, you know, Simon and Seaforts <laughs> anchor. Yeah. And and for me personally, but you know, I wasn't. But again, it, you know, everything. They, as I understand, these things still exist. There's after our gambling houses, people go to them. They have a good time. I I have no no desire to go to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to have to clean them. Yeah. No, thank you. You know, but that doesn't mean I condemn them or anything. I'm like, well, that's cool. I mean, you know, place you can go when you don't feel like going home yet. Another bar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I can't see doing it myself. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I think you're right. It's, so the transient nature of it is both what makes it a good place. And also I'm not, you know, maybe I will. It's probably a whole nother subject about the bad side of that or the downside. Yeah. So your second book, A Normal Life, is about your pursuit in finding a normal life. Do you feel like you found it? Yeah, but you know, I never really wanted to be that normal. Because <laughs> 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 I wasn't. Um, yeah, I think um, certainly uh, uh a law-abiding, above-the-line life, but uh, I, you know, like anyone, I'm at odds with myself sometimes, but I definitely wanted stability and quote-unquote normal, but I also was going to do things differently, you know. Um, I I didn't, you know, I came to parenting late in life. I, and this is not so different, but maybe, you know, for some of the people I knew growing up from I, I, it was, it was more important to me, the work I was doing or what I was doing or my own ambitions, if you will. And I, and I use, mm-hmm. use that as not a pejorative term, but the kinds of what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do for work, um, what I wanted, even now, you know, I'm sitting here and what do you want to work on these days? Um, what do you feel passionate about? Um, do you, sometimes I think that's it. I'm done. I'm I'm worn out from trying to, you know, <laughs> been writing or thinking of stories my whole adult life. Uh, and uh, actually, and before that, as a teenager, you know, I found out that there were roots for all that as a teen, mm-hmm. reading magazines, Rolling Stone magazine, and and uh, kind of being enraptured by the language. I would write down words. Oh, that's a cool word, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, uh, but... So I'm sort of unconventional, obviously. Uh, sometimes I fear a little too unconventional um, than some of my peers, you know, because uh, I'm at a point in life when, you know, I'm, <laughs> I don't want to say it, but it, I teach college. So you can teach college to your, an- to your ancient, <laughs> but sometimes some jobs just get harder as you get older. Um, I think, uh, you know, so I have to have an assistant. I hired my own assistant because I was finding that too many things are falling through the loop and I just wasn't, you know, up for, I just didn't have the patience for a lot of the small details that go with the job, if you will. Something I was thinking about was we've talked so much about your dad and I know that, you know, in the process of doing that, we've also talked about who you are how it's shaped you as a person, but I wonder how you see yourself now. You know, who is Kim Rich? Wow, you don't mess around. Um, who is, uh, how do I see myself now? You know, um, 
I think I'm a typical journalist. I had one of my dear editors, a man named Bill White, tell me that the the journalists that often worked for him, he was the best boss I ever had, you know, immediate supervisor, editor, boss. I worked with him for years on the business desk. I once said that generally the better reporters are the ones who would leave the job to go off to fellowships or school or travel around the world. We tended to be people who had far-ranging curiosities and sense of adventure and were interested in a lot of things, um, either because we couldn't decide what we wanted to be when we grew up, so we're going to be a little of everything, mm-hmm. um, or just because we just have these interests. Um, but I, so who am I? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good journalist. Um, I, I, people might call me a writer, but I don't, I don't know, you know, that is what I do for a living and I have a lot of craft, you know, um, and some innate ability. Um, well, I, like I said, I think I'm more the person I always wanted to be. And that, But the one thing I haven't really done enough of in writing and stuff is I really like to laugh and I'm really, I like to make jokes and I like sarcasm <laughs> and, you know, and I tend to, you know, make a lot of them. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think I missed my calling, you know, I would like to be a comedy writer or write funny stuff. I would, um, I I don't particularly care for the being alone kind of writing stuff. I like to be with other people Mm -hmm. (laughs) a lot. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. Who am I? Uh, I think I'm a loyal friend and I, I think I'm mellowing, which I like, but I still like a party a good party. I do. Um, I still like the shocks. You guys out there, if you're listening, um, please have a concert or get together again somewhere. Uh, they probably did just recently, I think, or last year, <laughs> last few years. Um, you know, band from my high school years, uh, garage band, I might add. Uh, you know, things like that. Um, a lot of the things that I liked to do when I was younger, I still like to do. Like I said, I like to go to parties. I like to be with people. Um, I'm outgoing and I loved being a mom. Oh my gosh. It was super cool. I don't know if it's so cool now, but (laughs) I mean, I I say now that having teenagers and young adult kids around, I love them. They're great. I couldn't live without them. But I said, you know, you have spell check. I have life check. (laughs) So no matter what it is we're doing, you know, try traveling with one of these guys. They're like, oh, mom, give, just give me your idea, mom. Give them, no, mom, you're supposed to, no, get your ticket out. You know, they're like, <laughs> and, and, and I just did this trip alone without anyone with me. And I was like fumbling, like, oh, I'm so used to Charlotte has all the documents or Kiki takes care of this or she carries this. Now I'm like, I have to do it alone again. I can't remember how to do this. Oh, geez, I'm, draw- I'm literally at security. I'm at the guy's little desk there thing, the podium, and I'm dropping in my ID and I'm dropping my wallet and I'm like fumbling for and I'm like oh my god if my kids were here they would just be like all over me you know uh, but I'd lost my ability to do it I you know um so because they took it away from me and plus that's my nature anyway I'm kind of that way um I'm definitely ADHD which I kind of embrace and love <laughs> I'm on you know medications I'm on medications otherwise I'd be eating a lot of Doritos and playing violent video games I think <laughs> um but uh and drinking um like 
Dr. Pepper all night long. Uh, Mountain Mountain Dew. Um, but at any rate, that was diagnosed late in life. Uh, so I don't know. I'm, you know, I, I think I'm kind of the same person I've always been, which is both good and bad, I think. You know, Kim, that does it for my questions. I, I just want to thank you so much for spending some time with me today. It was, I mean, it's an honor. It's a privilege to be able to talk to you. Like I said, and I probably can't say it enough. I love Johnny's girl. Um, and thank you. Thank you for, for writing that book. Uh, and I think that it will continue to connect with people. Wow. You're just, this is, I can't tell you what this means. Um, I, I, by the way, and well, I, I'm serious about your book. Let's keep in touch. Um, I'd love to talk to you about all that. Uh, uh, it sounds like you do. You, I think I know the feeling. I know where you're at with that. It's there and, and uh, it's, it's within reach. And I can talk to you about that now, you know, and I just think it sounds like a really good story and it sounds like you want to do it and need to do it. So sometimes there's that, mm -hmm. but we'll talk about that later. No, I'm honored that you asked me. This is so cool. I'm going to tell my kids I was on a podcast and they're going to be like, oh, who cares? Because I'm not cool. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you have kids and suddenly, and I don't even know what, what the hell is this thing of being cool? Forget cool. <laughs> I'm just boring. You know, I don't want to be cool. Uh, cool is, I don't know, the fawns. Um, but uh, no, thank you. And, 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 you know, the book, I think it's, it's, let me see, hold on a second. I got to figure out what year it was. It came out 80, 93, 93. 93. So it's the, is it the 30, 93? Yeah. 30. Is it the 40th anniversary? Is that right? See, I'm a math. I have to really think. Jeez, how did that happen? We'll we'll talk some more. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, but thank you. It's a really great honor. And come on down to New Orleans sometime. You and your wife, come on down, please. Let me show you around. Anywhere but Bourbon Street. <laughs> <laughs> For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. <laughs>